You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. The trend towards a more holistic environment in the workplace is increasing, and to help us understand how and why our guest today is David Dye, and he helps human-centered leaders find clarity in uncertainty, drive innovation, and achieve breakthrough results. He is the president of Let's Grow Leaders, an international leadership development and training firm known for practical tools and leadership development programs that stick. He is an award-winning author and hosts the popular Leadership Without Losing Your Soul podcast. David is a former executive and elected official. David and his wife and business partner, Karen Hurt, are committed to their philanthropic initiative, winning wells, building clean water wells for the people of Cambodia. We talk about, uh, as mentioned at the top here, creating a healthy work environment what is an holistic approach to leadership? That is a key topic we're on today. Why is it vital to train managers to cultivate as opposed to motivate? And how does authenticity and vulnerability by leaders encourage a healthy workplace? Stay tuned with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes to speak with David Dye. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show has been taped, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub, RMC on all locations. Dave, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell us about yourself. Uh, I know you have a, a very close relationship with your business partner. So you can certainly bring up your partner and wife in this and, and let us know how you got into this space of leadership. Uh, well, yes, a short uh, answer in terms of definition by career is I'm the president and co-owner of Let's Grow Leaders, which is an international leadership development firm. Um, the longer story is I'm the older of six kids. And I think my leadership memories go all the way back to being 11 years old and coordinating uh, playground activities with my sisters and all of their friends and my friends and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, I got into this field uh, doing leadership development professionally. I worked in the human service uh, nonprofit space for almost two decades and uh, was helping scale and grow the organization. And I was doing a lot of leadership development, coaching, management, training, uh, and it grew beyond what I could do person to person. So I started writing a blog 
back in, gosh, it's been 15 years ago now, to help get that word out to people who I couldn't interact with daily in person. And the blog grew, and I eventually realized how much passion and love I had for helping leaders and managers lead in a really human-centered way and become that best version of themselves and achieve good results in the process that, that everyone could be proud of. And so I uh, went out on my own and started my own business doing that. And uh, as you said, ran into Karen Hurt, uh, who was doing a similar thing uh, coming out of Verizon. And uh, we realized that we were really aligned in our approach to leadership and with the human-centered aspect and, and a results focus. And so we eventually decided we wanted to collaborate on something. We, we did not know each other uh, in person. It was a completely remote relationship. Uh, wrote uh, a book after a couple of meetings at conferences and uh, shortening the story when the book was being published, we realized that we had become much more than co-authors and good friends and that uh, we were going to try to give it a shot uh, dating. And we did. And that worked out and we got married, merged our businesses. And uh, that's uh, where we are today. Well, that's very inspirational for a lot of us. Dave, why do we need somebody like you to help cultivate leaders? Where, why is there a vacuum in this space? That is such a good question, uh, Kathy. And it's one, I, I give you kudos for asking because I always ask myself that question. And it's one that not a lot of people ask, but I think it's so important. And I would say that the answer is similar to other skills like parenting, where, look, in the history of humanity, we've always been coming together to do something that's bigger than any one of us, to create a better tomorrow. But there are skills involved with doing that well, and there are all obviously ways of doing it poorly. And to learn those skills, we have to learn them somewhere. And so to get the help we need to learn those skills, I think that's why there is this need, as you say, for leadership development, for people to help us learn how do we bring people together and produce results beyond what we can do, but in a way that feels good when we look at ourselves in the mirror each night and that the people engaged in the work are becoming that best version of themselves and, and are truly better for having participated. And so that's not something that we all naturally know how to do. We need to learn it. Well, who's who's asking you to come and speak? You're speaking in front of very large audiences, right? So is it the the you know the 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 forward thinking manager? Is it the CEO that's you know trying to cultivate a good uh, part of their organization? Who contacts you and says, "Listen, we need you to come and talk to us." That's a, another great question. Typically, the people who are calling um, have come across our content or been referred to us by somebody else that we've worked with. And so it often is a CEO or a chief human resource officer or a chief operating officer uh, who is coming and saying, hey, what you're doing here and what you're talking about here, our leaders need this. And I can see culturally where we are and that they need this. So we work with uh, very large organizations, but our sweet spot are organizations that have grown very rapidly. And so maybe they've been in business for five or 10, 12 years, and they've gotten past that point where everybody in the organization knows one another by sight. And you can't just informally make things happen anymore. And they're realizing the need to get organized. And usually the business growth has happened faster than their management and leadership development. And so you'll have senior leaders calling saying, can you help us make that transition? 
So that is uh, one of the, the most frequent types of clients that we'll call. Uh, and then you'll also get very large organizations. One of our, our larger uh, clients right now is uh, Nestle Switzerland. And that's work with the CEO and multiple levels of leadership uh, working on uh, what they call a care and dare culture. It's a very human-centered culture that they have that they are also wanting to um, be daring and innovative and solving better and newer problems. And so you have a, a variety of folks who will call asking for that assistance. So it almost sounds like the holistic approach to health has moved into the workspace. Would that be uh, the right way uh, to look at it? I would, I would love for that statement to be true. And I also, uh, I'm analytic and I don't want to overstate the case. So I think that there is definitely a trend in some aspects of work, but there is a long, long way to go to create a truly human-centered workplace. And, you know, getting back to why the need is there and what gets in the way, Kathy, I look at it as, you know, we've got these forces that are working against us uh, as leaders, as managers, our biology. So we've got that natural freeze, fight, flight, or friend rally the troops and, and friends and, and, you know, fight the bear, whatever it might be. All, those instincts don't necessarily serve us when we're trying to positively influence other human beings. Um, our sociology, what have we learned from the leaders in our lives? Sometimes those are positive, sometimes not so much so. Uh, and then you've got the, the kind of the addictive responses of if I yell, I can get some results. And so that can become an addictive type of uh, behavior. Or if I people please and, uh, and just try to be like, that can also feel really good. So you've got all of these tendencies that we have, which interfere with our ability to truly be human-centered leaders who get sustaining, lasting results if we don't learn those other skills. Well, we've got the, we've got the CEOs pushing down trying to get you into the space of managers. Do you see a push up from the employees of maybe a disgruntled uh, part of an organization? Are the employees maybe pushing saying, you know, this, this needs to be done better? Often, yes. And that's an interesting intersection. It really depends on who's in what seats, whether or not that's going to bubble up and become lasting change or not. If there's that much of a push in the lower um, or, or in the lower levels of the org chart, and it's not heard or embraced at senior levels, typically those people will move on. Um, and and there are also organizations who senior leaders have a heart; they want to be human-centered leaders, and they're trying to figure it out. And they they start to see that and go, "Okay, wait, we need to do something different." And I'm thinking of one client in particular. Um, who we did a long-term engagement with, who they were seeing consistently on their exit interviews of people leaving, that the immediate leadership, the, the manager's leadership was one of the top three reasons consistently for people leaving the organization. And they said, this is not good. And so, uh, you know, they looked at a number of different uh, organizations and resources and finally worked with us to help equip their managers with better skills. And that was a successful program. And it came about because of those conversations. It's a shame that people had to leave in order to express that. It would have been better if we could have been asking those questions earlier, but they ultimately did make that transition. It took two and a half, three years, and they did a great job. So, you know, what I'm getting from this is you've got to train your CEOs and the, the you know, the hierarchy of the company to look for a particular type of manager. And does this necessarily have to have, does this manager necessarily have to have 
a skill in the particular job space or is, you know, what you're driving at is more of a, a managing people pushing the pushing your employees to be the creative space while the manager is dealing with the ins and outs of being an employee in the company? You know, it's a, to me, it's one of the most important questions that any senior leader in any organization is going to answer is, who am I putting into positions of leadership or management? And why that is such a vital question is people are your most important asset. They're usually one of the most expensive assets apart from major capital investments or something. And so who are you entrusting that important asset to? And it's fascinating how often people will put somebody in a management role with no training, no investment in that person and say, here, here are four or five of the most important assets we have in this business. Take care of them <laughs> and no, with no training, no skills. So as you're, if you're in a role where you're looking at who you want to promote into positions of responsibility for people, I usually say there's a couple things. Yes, you want them to be competent at their own work. They need to have demonstrated that kind of competence, their character. Um, have you seen the reliability, the trustworthiness? Ideally, you've given them a chance to be influential without authority. So maybe in a committee, a, a ad hoc working group, a task force of some kind, um, and got a sense of how do they handle power? Some people run away with it and it goes to their head. So once you have those elements, then one of the other things I look for is a person's ability to have challenging conversations because accountability, performance conversations, when we don't live up to our commitments to one another, those are all part of the leadership and management space and to do that in a human-centered way. So those are the things I'm looking for when I'm promoting someone into a position of leadership or management. And that's also what I encourage senior leaders to be looking for as they're doing the same. Your cha the challenging conversations that you're talking about. So, um, you know, we've all been, anyone who's worked in a, in a corporation uh, as such has had the, the surveys done and what do you think of this person and are there capabilities? Do you think that those type of approaches to critiquing employees and managers undermines the system that you're trying to put in place where it's a conversation-based, tell me what your problems are sort of scenario? They definitely can interfere. If you can build an organization, and we call it a courageous culture. Our, our most recent book that Karen and I wrote together was called Courageous Cultures, How to Build Teams of Micro-Innovators, Problem Solvers, and Customer Advocates. And the idea is that you're building a culture where people can have the conversations with one another and with you. And as a leader, how you are conducting yourself, how you're inviting input feedback, and how you're responding to it, all of those elements combine to help create that culture. So if you don't have a culture like that, and you have a, a very low trust, there's not a lot of psychological safety, then there are ways to start making that transition. And some of the tools that you're describing can be helpful in that transition. And my caveat there is they have to be used well. Um, they can do a lot of damage if they're not used well and undermine trust and, and so on. And I'm just thinking of a, uh, a manager in finance who I talked with two weeks ago who uh, was staying behind after a program, getting a little bit of coaching. And he said, you know, I, I was at a, my previous company and they did these anonymous 360s and just they were eviscerating, just horrible experience for people. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you're after. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm a believer that a, a well-conducted good 360 can be incredibly powerful. We, we coach our uh, managers, participants, and senior leaders all to do what we call listening tours, which is taking a specific subject and going out and asking, hey, listen, I want to run a more effective meeting. What's one thing that I'm doing that's working for you? And what's one thing I could do that would make this, our meetings even more effective? And invite that feedback face-to-face or, you know, it might be virtual face to virtual face, but still to have those conversations and then summarize what you're getting and choose one area to work on. If you can build a culture where you're doing that and where people are rewarded for speaking up, it becomes the norm, uh, turns everything on its head and you've got an entirely different kind of atmosphere, productivity, innovation, problem solving, all of that happening because people can bring their best version of themselves to their job. I have a question for you to put you a little bit on the hot seat here. Um, <laughs> with respect to managing, do you see a style difference between men and women? You know, I don't know how well I would take a very critical 360, but I think in a conversation, it would be an easier space for me. And, you know, as you were talking, I remember listening to a TED talk and he was a, I think an ABC anchorman. And I can't remember what his name was. And he was talking about the 360 he had, and he was, it was out of left field, how critical it was um, about him. And I'm yeah. just wondering, you know, he took that and he changed and he went on to have, you know, sort of a different meditative holistic path but, you know, that can, that can really knock the sales out of some people, um, an approach that is a 360 versus a conversation. Do you see, okay, the question here is, do <laughs> you see a difference in management style between men and women? And can both work successfully if you do? So I'm going to answer that question broadly, um, even taking, so you've got, uh, you know, gender and cultural issues. Uh, you've got generational issues. There are so many different ways you can slice and dice and group people. Uh, and the ultimate answer to that question is you have to take every person as an individual. Um, can you make generalizations about groups? Sure you can. The problem with that is that they don't always hold true. So let me take it to generations. Uh, you know, my, uh, my daughter and her friend, uh, millennials, and would never have their phones with them. And I was like, can you navigate us to so-and-so? They said, oh, we don't have our phones. I said, what kind of millennials are you? In contrast, a 70-year-old friend of mine, he knew more about apps and phone technology than anybody I knew. He was always introducing me to things. So getting to know people individually if, from a leadership perspective is first and foremost the most critical thing. Getting down to your question, um, more broadly speaking, are there differences Sure, but the, I think the more important answer is how do you as an individual take it? So I'm just going to take uh, Karen and I, since I mentioned it. Uh, Karen identifies as female, identifies as male. We're very different in our personalities and in our drive and how we handle feedback and how quickly it will linger. I am the kind of person who, if you were to give me negative feedback, I am still processing it a week or two later. And that's how I work. I process, I take it in, I mull it over, I think about it, I figure out what to do. And at first I would go, wow, that really hurts. And then two weeks later, I might be doing something positive with it. Karen, on the other hand, takes it, responds to it, and it may be positive, negative, what have you. But within 24 hours, she has pretty much moved on. <laughs> she's incorporated it if she's going to, and has rejected it if she's not, and on her way she goes. Right, so that's not gender that's just how our brains work it's just how we're wired 
And so we want to be careful about those kinds of generalizations. Now, I want to get to the second part of what you're asking there, Kathy. When we get feedback like that, um, and the, the gentleman who you referred to, sometimes that feedback is a gift, and sometimes it's completely wrong. And let me give you a couple examples. So uh, one time, uh, Karen was an executive at Verizon, and, and uh, early in her career, she had somebody tell her, you smile too much. Well, come on. That's <laughs> just, just useless feedback, right? And uh, not good at all. And so she took it and rejected it. So I'm not going to do that. And so I, th- I think of feedback that we receive as it's a gift that has been given us. Now, that doesn't mean we have to take it. So think of the scratchy sweater that you get from your aunt or uncle at the holidays. Um, and you're like, oh, this thing's kind of ugly and scratchy. I don't want to wear this. So you can re-gift it or, or donate it or give it to somebody who does appreciate it. You don't have to, to take it and wear it. That's a choice we get to make. And so the value of those things, even when they first hurt, I, I think of it as catching a base. Like you, you don't catch a baseball barehanded if you're a, a ball player. You wear a mitt. And so feedback's a little like that. I want to catch that feedback in my mitt, not barehanded. And then I'm going to look at it and decide what to do with it. Am I going to put it in my pocket, carry it with me, or am I going to toss it? You know, I have a choice. Don't have to internalize it right away. That sounds like a skill to me, one that you might be teaching your managers. Everyone, we're going to take a break. We're going to come right back on this point. Um, We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back. We are having a wonderful conversation here with David Dye. David, let's continue along the same vein that we were on. Um, are there natural born leaders then? So if, if we have to accept, have to accept, that's absolutely wrong. So we're accepting all the variations of people out there, um, culturally, gender, so forth. We've got to that space. You've explained that, um, you know, as with everything else, the individual is where we're, we need to be at. But are there actually natural born leaders out there? That's <laughs> one of these questions that uh, you could you could talk about for a long time. Here's the fastest answer I can give you: is there are people who have natural inclinations uh, to skill sets that people recognize and will follow. And then I go back to Bobby Fischer, who was a chess player for the United States uh, you know, many decades ago, and he said that uh, you know success is five percent talent, but ninety five percent the work you do with it, uh, and. I think that leadership is like that. So there are people who are charismatic, but charisma is not a leadership skill. But initially, charisma can help you attract followers. But if you're not backing that up with some other things, it can get empty or even get you into trouble. Um, On the other hand, there are people who have mad organizational skills and are really good at, at driving efficiency and results. And so they have some of those management skills that come very naturally to them. And if they don't pair those with a regard for people and a focus on relationships, they're going to be limited in what they can achieve, what they can do. So our approach to leadership is, we call it land in the ant, that as a leader, you want to show up with confidence and humility. 
Now, those are two things that all of us are born on a continuum, maybe more confident, maybe more humble. But as a leader, can I show up bringing both of those to the table? Confidence that I know my values, I, I have a vision for the future, I know what I want to achieve. Humility that I don't know all the answers, that the people in the room have their own experiences, their own perspectives, uh, that I'm going to make mistakes, that I'm going to admit when I'm wrong, that I'm going to invite people to challenge my beliefs. If I can bring both of those together, I'm going to be more effective. Likewise, if I can focus in every situation on results and relationships, if I can focus on the results we need to achieve and building productive, healthy relationships, once again, I'm going to be far more effective than whichever end of that continuum I naturally gravitate towards. And all of us gravitate towards one side of that continuum or the other. That's where the skill of learning to be an effective leader comes in, is how can I also use, learn to use some of the other side. You've got a great saying, uh, don't motivate, cultivate. Um, I'm sorry, everyone, for the noise. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's right in my left brain. Um, the question I have here, so you've got a leader, you've molded him to your ethos. Now it's up to the manager to move forward. Does the manager need to be looking for something in particular when he's looking to hire someone under his umbrella? Yeah, so if you're in a position hiring or you're trying to add to your team, a uh, number of things you want to look for. Um, one of them is, you know, people will talk about cultural fit, but there's a more kind of holistic and progressive way to look at that these days. It's not, is somebody going to be a carbon copy of your culture? It's, do they believe and align with the values of the organization? Um, so your culture may need some change. Your culture might be very mono. Um, cultural. You might not have any youth in your culture. You might not have any of a particular people group in your culture. So it's not just culture fit. It's values alignment. Do they believe in the values that... that so in our, our organization, one of our values is customer responsiveness. Like we want to take care of people at a high level quality and we want to do it quickly as we can. So we screen for that and talk about that in the, in the course of hiring. If exacting precision is a critical value for your team, you need to be screening for that, right? So those are, you know, kinds of things that you certainly want to look for as you're hiring. Not every person is meant to be a member of every team, and that's okay. Um, you have to know those things and the competencies that are going to lead to success in those roles and, and what you're looking for um, on your team or in your department. Can the mantra of a company, um, their their style, so forth, can they negatively impact a manager and what you're trying to accomplish for them? Can there be a disconnect there? <laughs> yes, there can. Uh, and I have worked in those organizations myself, and I think it's some of what has uh, motivated me over the years in the work that I do. So listen, <clears throat> you're a leader. You're trying to be human-centered. You're trying to produce amazing results. You may work in an organization that really aligns around those things, or maybe not. And if you find yourself in a situation where that's not the case, uh, our invitation, and we talk about this in, in the book Courageous Cultures, is to build a cultural oasis. So your organization may be a desert, but you can build that watering hole where the trees grow and people come to be refreshed. No one can force you to treat people in an inhuman way. That's a choice you get to make. That may be the cultural uh, inertia in your organization, but it's still a choice that we get to make. And I've been there. Uh, and 
what happens is typically you will start to get results. And this is one of my favorite things to see in an organization. It takes a long time and you have to be willing to, to do the work, but you can sometimes change an organization from the inside out as people start to see results and you get more responsibility and your work is respected and you have a line of people wanting to work for you and with you on your team um, or in your department. And those types of things sometimes can spread outwards depending on the type of organization, the infrastructure. There's a lot of variables that go into it. But if you're in one of those situations, that's where I invite you to start. Can you build a cultural oasis? And if, if that gets you in a lot of trouble and you're not able to thrive or succeed in that kind of role, probably isn't the right organization for you. When you're trying to, as a manager, you're trying to have this culture where people are made to feel comfortable about objecting or having questions uh, where you, you know, it's almost like getting on a, a little bit more of a personal level with the the people that you're managing. Is there a line in this relationship that needs to be drawn in the sand? Do you want to be friends with employees or do you need to have a mutually exclusive area in that relationship? There are about three or four questions in there. Let me take them one at a time here. So first is leadership is a relationship. It is a human relationship with another human being. And in the work environment, you know, we spend the majority of our waking hours at work and with the people we're working with, and whether that's remotely or in the same room, that's still the reality. So this aspect of relationship is huge. And when you're talking about working relationships, trust is at the core of those relationships. And so when you look at all the research around trust, there are really four elements that come up. Do I believe you know what you're doing? Are you credible? Okay, so that's one that as a manager, people are going to be looking at you for. Um, two is, are you reliable? Do you do what you say you're going to do? Okay, those we can both wrap our head around those. The third one is, are we connected? Do I know you as a human being? It doesn't mean that we have to be best friends or friends at all, but it does mean that we recognize and respect the humanity in one another. And that takes some self-disclosure and some connection to get there. And this doesn't have to be huge. You know, it's, we actually had a manager, a senior leader call us one time because his junior managers uh, were so task focused. He was trying to, to help them, like, ask people about their weekend, like have some human connection. And so these task focused managers would do things like, hey, how was your weekend? And the person would say, oh, it was good. I got a new puppy. Okay, great. So today's tasks are, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and they weren't asking the logical next question of like, oh, well, is the puppy eating your underwear? You know, like the, the what's just that next question to just build some relationship and, oh, what kind of puppy was it? Or, you know, what, whatever it is. And occasionally disclosing that some of their own life as well. So it's not about you have to be friends with everybody. It's about the relationship. And then the fourth component of trust uh, is, does the person believe I have their best interests at heart? Do you care about my well-being and my welfare as a human being? And if I believe that, I'll be more forgiving of the other elements. So I don't have to have as huge a connection. But if I don't believe that, and I have reason not to believe that, doesn't matter how credible you are or how connected we are, if I think you're using me or playing games, that's really going to erode trust. So those all go into that, that calculus of the relationships we have at work. Do... <laughs> Do you know people when you say, okay, let, let's get that question. Um, 
the question I, you know, at the end of the day is, are you seeing the fruits of your labor? Are you seeing movement within companies that are being more productive because of what you're teaching managers? Have you seen that yet? Or are you still in the infancy phase of the education piece yet? Oh, we've been doing this for quite some time. And absolutely, uh, to, to use my teenagers uh, phrasing, 100%. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is fat, it is so fun and rewarding to see. Um, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to go in and do some work with a, in a couple hours here with an executive team at an organization, a global organization. Um, and some of the way they've been able to transform their communication, uh, reduce friction and inefficiencies and headaches that people cause one another. And now today they're working uh, at, from the most senior level saying, all right, We've made progress. Now we want to work on how do we both collaborate and hold one another accountable in a, a more meaningful way at every level of the organization. We're doing so much well, and we're seeing some breakdowns in some of our internal polling of um, a couple of these areas. So, all right, leadership team, this is the culture we want. Let's get after it. And that is so fun and awesome to see. And I can tell you a story after story of clients who say, these are the values, this is the culture we want to create. And then they'll work with us to do the work, to do the leadership development, to figure out how to go about telling those stories, reinforcing behaviors, and seeing that change happen. Um, I, I mentioned it earlier, the client that had called in with the folks who are listing their immediate leadership manager as one of the top three reasons they're leaving the company. Two and a half, three years later, that had shifted. The culture was different. Leadership wasn't even in the top 10 anymore of reasons people were leaving. So absolutely, you see that change. And it is one of the most, it's why we do this work. I mean, love to see people becoming that best version of themselves and organizations becoming human-centered cultures that are producing amazing results and making positive change in the world. Well, when push comes to shove, the bottom line is productivity. And when your key asset is happy, you're going to have more in the production space. So it, it is quite logical and it it's almost counterintuitive that this hasn't played into um, the echelons of business management. So congratulations for bringing that to the surface. Now let's take a, a little bit of a turn here. And you recently, I think it was published in 2022, you published a book called Tomorrow Together. It's a bit of a departure from your other books, if I might say. Um, mm-hmm. Why... Why did you go along this line and how does it fit into what you're doing? Uh, thank you for, for bringing it up. Yeah, Tomorrow Together came out summer of 2022. And uh, it is a, first to describe the book, it's a collection of essays. And many of them are personal stories. Others are observational. So if you're somebody who likes reading inspiration, motivational types of essay collections, it's, it's the book for you. The, the theme, the through line is very related to leadership, which is at the heart of leadership is the belief that if we come together and work together, we can create a better tomorrow. We can have a better future. That's the essence of leadership. And I don't care if you're talking business leadership, uh, community leadership, what have you, that's leadership. And so the the reason that I wrote this book was because, uh, and you're right, it is different where our other books are practical guidance for building a specific culture or doing things in a business leadership context. 
this is a life context and it asks sometimes more questions and has more reflections and it's meant to be thought provoking. And the reason that I wrote it was uh, during the pandemic, I was watching Hamilton and uh, there's a, a song in Hamilton um, where it's talking about how he couldn't stop writing and why was he writing all the time? Why was he writing like he was running out of time? And it kind of hit me in the, the face. I said, gosh, I'm writing all the time, but am I running like I'm running out of time? And the answer was no, because if I was, I would write this book. Um, that the, the messages and the essays are so critical. These are things I had to get out into the world. And the response has been tremendous. I have been so happy um, and, and inspired myself to see how people have responded to different works in the, in the book and been motivated and had their own epiphanies or done their own writing or made some of the own, their own changes. So that's what motivated it. Well, congratulations on it. Um, you talk about writing this through through the pandemic. I know that's when you had your, your sit down with it. Um, and with respect to the pandemic, did that, um, did the, the workplace scenario, it obviously changed for many in more, you know, in some places more than others. Has that changed anything about your approach to management because there have been, you know, some of the changes may never go back. Um, mm -hmm. Has it impacted the way you approach working with your clients? There are two levels of answer to that. The first is what it means to be a good leader and effective manager. That hasn't changed. Those are principles. Those are values that are based in how you interact with other human beings. What has changed is the way you have to do that. Uh, in many cases. And so the way that it, we had to change how we were interacting with our clients, we had going into the pandemic, about two or 3% of the work we were doing was live online. And that shifted to be 100% for quite some time. Now we're back to um, getting into some more of a, not an even mix, but certainly maybe a, a let's call it 40-60. And the work that leaders have to do is interesting in terms of how they're showing up. One of the things the pandemic did, Kathy, it emphasized leadership vulnerability. Leaders who were connecting and showing up authentically were, were having success. And that's one of those things I hope people won't lose as we return to whatever the new normal might look like. And we have a choice about how we're creating that. So not to lose that, not to lose that humanity and that connection and that regard for one another that the pandemic helped force us into. And some people went very naturally and others went kicking and screaming, but that opportunity is there for all of us. So there are these lessons learned. Um, one of the others that I think is so important is for, you know, while some people uh, never left face-to-face -face, and that's the nature of the work, so many people went into a remote only environment and now are coming back either hybrid, still remote only, or maybe they're back completely face-to-face -face. regardless it is an opportunity for every leader and the more senior, especially, but for every leader to be very intentional. There's no magic in an in-person meeting just by definition. The magic comes in how are you intentionally using that? And so the, the online forced effective leaders to be very intentional about how they were using that time. And now to recognize the incredible value 
uh, an opportunity there is when we can be face-to-face and are we really leveraging that? Are we really being intentional about that time and not taking that for granted? Those are all opportunities that we have that the pandemic has made available to us. Now, I'm not in the big work space anymore, but you know, to me, I, I was teaching and then I was teaching online and I thought that there was a huge shift and watching my children go through online schooling, the, you know, the focus, the paying attention, the interaction, it, can it be the same when you're virtual? It's not the same. It's different. Um, it's, it is absolutely different and different doesn't have to mean negative doesn't have to mean not good. Um, In many cases, it can mean those things. On the other hand, uh, you can create amazing virtual relationships if you work at it, if you do it, and it takes a different approach, different set of skills um, than the way things kind of happen naturally in person. And I know that because of my own relationships. I mean, let's take Karen and I. I mentioned the top of the show. Uh, we met each other online, didn't see each other in person for a long time. And then it was 20 minutes at a conference. Then it was 15 minutes at another conference six months later, wrote a book, wrote, living 1,700 miles apart uh, and became very good friends with conversations and uh, online interaction, phone calls and Zoom calls, all the rest of it. So it is very possible. Um, but I, I don't want to undermine what you're saying either is that in-person is better for many reasons and a lot of things. It's not an either or choice. It's a, now we recognize all of these tools that we have in our toolkit. How are we going to leverage them effectively and not just do what we've automatically done because we had to, Well, we had to do that remote thing. All right. Well, we learned some things and how to leverage it. Okay. We've had to do the in-person thing. That's what we knew. Well, now we've got choices. So when should we use what? Those are the questions that I think the most effective organizations are asking right now. And we're all learning. We're all still figuring that out. I guess it must have been a shift in your way of uh, working with people as well, because, you know, the the amount of people that, I mean, virtually we're all online, you know, for a period of time. And I think this is all still in its infancy. We're all striving to figure out where this works as business owners, as clinicians. Um, and you're going to have some people that are much more comfortable online versus in person for what whatever that reason may be. So um, the inclusiveness that you portray when you're working with people and just in this conversation today is wonderful. And I want to thank you for sharing that with us. It was really a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being with us, David. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's been my my pleasure to share some of these uh, tools and strategies with you. And all your books are on Amazon. People can find all your books there. And we'll have, uh, do you have a website that you want to tell us about that people can reach out to you if they want to? Sure. The first place I want to invite people to go is we're in the process of writing a new book and we ha- it's on uh, conflict and collaboration in the workplace. And would love to have your listeners participate in our World Conflict uh, Workplace Survey. So you go to... Uh, worldworkplaceconflictsurvey.com. And uh, you can take that there. And as you conclude that, it will take you to all of our other websites. But yes, all the books, Courageous Cultures, Tomorrow Together, everything else, all available on Amazon or anywhere that books are sold. And our company website is letsgrowleaders.com. David, once again, thanks so much and congratulations on what you do. 
everybody. We will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.